is the cure for a troubled heart? The key to it, or the cure, really lies in this question and the two answers Jesus gives to it. The question is, where are you, Jesus? Where are you right now? And the two answers that he's going to give us in this passage is, I'm in heaven, preparing a place for you, and I'm in you, preparing a place for me and the Father. This is the word of God, the word of Jesus, um, John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, disciples. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you and bring you to myself so that, so that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, I love Thomas. Thomas said to him, but uh, Lord, we don't. We don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip chimes in. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long, and still you don't know me? Whoever has, see has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or, believe on the account of the works that I've done themselves. Truly, or take my word for this, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in me, the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's pray. Jesus, Holy Spirit, God our Father, you know what this week has been like for us. Some of us have experienced little victories, little moments of hitting our stride, obeying you, listening to you, yielding ourselves to you. And a lot of us have been discouraged by setbacks, weeks that did not go well, nights that did not turn out the way we wanted them to, and we left you again. And so our hearts are mixed and our minds are mixed and they're distracted and we're ignorant of a lot of things. We don't understand what we just read. We have need everywhere we look. We're poor. 
and you're rich, and you are love, and you are merciful, and you are a savior. So we need you to be all of who you are tonight to us, myself and my friends. And we expect you and hope and anticipate you doing these very things. So now come and do it, Jesus. Show yourself powerful through your spirit to the glory of the Father. Amen. So if you've watched the Last Dance documentary, you know in 1999, uh, three men left the Chicago Bulls franchise, Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan. And it was after six almost back-to-back national championships. I think six out of eight years, six out of seven years, the Chicago Bulls were the dominant team by far in the NBA. But in the seasons after those three guys left the Bulls, the team would never get higher than number 15 in the league. That was kind of their new ceiling, 15th best in an NBA that didn't even have that many teams to begin with. Tom Brady left the Patriots this year. He announced right around quarantine time he's leaving the Patriots and not coming back. Since he left, this season the Patriots have lost twice as many games as they've won because Tom Brady left. In 2014, a pastor named Tom Driscoll, who, sorry, Mark Driscoll, who many of you may know, if you were in college when I was, you all would have been reading him and hearing about him. He, he planted and led a church called Mars Hill in Seattle of all places. It had 12,500 members, regular attendees. And in 2014, he resigned and stepped down. And within two months, Mars Hill literally was boarding up the doors and the church was closed after Mark Driscoll left. Closer to home, some of your best friends graduated last year, and uh, you would sit with your other roommates, or we would sit over lunch or coffee and groan together, and you would wonder, how am I, like, how is my house going to be anything worthwhile without my best friend there, who's living in Buckhead now, or Charlotte? How is RUF going to be the same it was without the worship leaders who just left, or the leaders, the the prayer group leaders, the, the Bible study leaders that I had. I'd been under for three years. Leaving is hard, but being left behind is harder, is it not? Some of you are about to stand up here next week. You're graduating soon. You're the one who's leaving. But I got to tell you, as the guy who's always being left, <laughs> I'm the constant here, so I'm always the one saying goodbye to y'all. I feel it's harder. Uh, There's some anticipation, some excitement, some momentum when you're the one leaving, even if it's leaving with sadness. But when you're the one being left, you're the one asking all the questions of like, how are we going to go on? I remember my first year as a campus minister, we had a phenomenal uh, worship team, really clicked well together, great quality. They, They led really well, beautiful, amazing students. And when they graduated, me as a rookie and with my tiny little faith in Jesus was legitimately losing sleep over how's the ministry going to go on any longer? How's it going to continue without these leaders there? And then I begin to realize over the years, nobody is indispensable in the kingdom of God because Jesus provides for his people. But I was losing sleep over it. My heart was troubled over it. If you're the person being left behind, it's hard for you to think about a future without that person. Plus, there's just all the sadness of not having their friendship, not having them around to process. Now, what happens when Jesus is the all-star who's leaving. Not Jordan, not Pippen, not Brady, not Driscoll, but Jesus 
is the all-star who's just announced his imminent departure from this little band of 12 disciples and all of his other followers. Um, and let's just make it a little bit worse since it's already a dire situation. It's the worst week of your life when he says, I have an announcement to make, call a press conference. I'm leaving. The disciples we talked about last week, um, I mean, they see their lives, they see Jesus's life, they see the kingdom of God kind of spiraling the toilet bowl. It's all going out of control. This is not at all what they expected just a week ago when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in a limousine entourage of the day as a king, being worshiped by hundreds of thousands of people. Jerusalem empties out to welcome its king, and now everything is turning. Not making a political statement, but the existential experience some of you had four years ago or last week, when you thought your candidate was gonna win and then a sense of doom set in when you realized not only is tonight screwed because my candidate lost, the next four years, the country's lost. The bad guys, the bad girls have the power now. I can't, just on an order of magnitude that's unimaginable, that's the disciples. Doom, not just tonight, doom forever. And right then is when Jesus said, I'm leaving. This is the Jesus, John said a few chapters ago, is the light of the world. And in the darkest night, of any of their lives, the light says he's leaving in the middle of the darkness. This is the one who John says is love. God is love. And love says he's leaving. This was personal to the disciples too. Just like for those of you who know Jesus, you're Christians, this would be deeply personal to you too. Jesus wasn't just this kind of theological figure to them. He taught them everything they knew. He was the one who finally unlocked the Jewish scriptures for them. They finally understood, you know, their Bible. He was their best friend, their confidant, the one who was just never snapped back at them, never asked the question that shamed, only the questions that brought healing, always had time for them, never screened the call, looked them in the eye and knew them inside and out. They trusted him. They loved this man. They believed he was God. And that Jesus says he was leaving. So they're distraught, they're undone, they're panicking, they're dumbfounded, they're wondering all the questions you and I wonder in a lower key way, what are we gonna do without him? How is this gonna go on? Is this just all doomed now? Because he just said he's leaving. Why is he leaving? Where is he going? Why now? And apparently, like I mentioned before we read the passage, this is a, a, a night just frozen in amber in John's brain because he remembers it down to the granular details. John was here. John is not recording somebody else's account. John knows what Jesus's face looked like when he said, can you ever, have you ever been in a room or a meeting where you can tell someone's about to make a really big announcement and you're like, oh no, what's about to come out of this person's mouth? A coach of yours in high school. Let's all get in the locker room and you love this coach. You love this coach. You finally blossomed under his or her care. And they say, hey, got, we gotta have a team meeting. And you gather around and your heart starts beating out of your chest because like, Is, please don't, please don't say you're gonna live. A, a youth leader, a pastor, whoever. John felt that. John remembers it like it was yesterday, the night Jesus said he was leaving on the worst night, the darkest night. And of all things, it was the light of the world that said, I'm leaving the world. And where I'm going, you can't go. 
So let's talk about these questions. Jesus, where are you? And how Jesus answers them. Uh, they asked it, Jesus, where are you going? And we ask it, Jesus, where are you now? Where are you now? And in getting the answer to these questions, we find the cure for a troubled and terrified heart. People who don't know, how am I gonna live through the next month, the next year, the next decade, given where things are going? This is the cure for a troubled heart. And that was always the cure for my troubled heart when I was a little kid. I know you had to have had the experience I think shopping malls were still a thing when y'all were kids. <laughs> but you know at like Christmas time or when, when, like Black Friday or whenever you went to the shopping mall with your mom or your dad and you got lost or any big huge store and you're about like this tall and everybody's twice your height and you lost sight of mom, you couldn't see her. And you're just running around and you can't see her, you can't find her and you're getting more and more panicked and you're starting to run now and she's not where, you, she, where she was earlier, and you're starting to panic. And all it took was the slightest glimpse of my mom from across the store, or the sound of her voice, just the quickest glimpse of her in immediate peace, immediate calm from my troubled heart. This, this is what we're talking about tonight. A glimpse of Jesus Finding where he is brings calm to your terrified and troubled heart, regardless of the trigger, the cause, the catalyst. One little glimpse. But to see him, to find him, you must know where he is. And he's not playing hide and seek with y'all. So he told you. He told you where to look. Jesus is saying to you, particularly you Christians, the first 13 chapters, the, the, all the semester up to this point, Jesus is speaking to mixed company, and oftentimes primarily to those of you who don't know where you are with him, you're still, the jury's still out with what you think about Jesus. You don't know if you believe him when he says he's God, when he says he's Savior, when he says he's a friend of sinners, when he says you must come to him if you want to have life. Now Jesus has shifted gears and he's having these in-house conversations with his people, with Christians. So Christians in the room tonight, Jesus specifically is looking at you and he's telling you the cure for your troubled heart is knowing that he is in heaven preparing a place for you and that he's in you preparing a place for himself and the Father. The first thing, he's in heaven preparing a place for you. For all the clarity that Jesus gave us that he was leaving, he's remarkably unclear and just uninterested in describing where he's going. He says repeatedly, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you can't go. I'm leaving, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's very nondescript, though, in the place. They, Thomas, I love him. He's like, did I miss a memo or a team meeting? Where's this place you're going? We don't know the way. You're, you say we know the way. I, I don't know the way. Do y'all know the way? What's the way? Where are you going? Jesus doesn't really give details. I mean, he's talking about heaven here, and you would, you would expect maybe here he's going to go on a big riff about streets of gold and, and just the paradise and all these kind of things, and he doesn't. He doesn't even really answer Thomas's question in any way that Thomas would imagine. What Jesus does tell Thomas is that one day you will be with me where I am with the Father. So he doesn't describe the place in detail, but he describes who's going to be there in detail. It's going to be you. It's going to be me. It's going to be the Father. It's going to be the Spirit. That's what he says. It's like a brochure 
You know, like when you're at the hotel and they have a whole rack of brochures of places you can go. It's like a brochure, except there's no pictures, no descriptions, just a little line that says, uh, one of your best friends or someone says, trust me, you're going to love this. That's it. And that's all you have to go on. That's what Jesus is doing here. Not the shiny brochure, but the trust me, don't worry, I'm getting things ready for you. And then he says this kind of stuff, which we're going to explain because it you can seem like, is that supposed to um, hype me up? Because I don't think it worked. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house are many rooms. I don't know what your mind is imagining right now, like some like La Quinta Inn or something, where you're like, okay, cool, like, what's my room number um, in this place that Jesus has gone to prepare for me? But in a Near Eastern context, what happened when you reached kind of young adulthood, even if you got married, guys, you get married, you didn't like go, oh, I'm moving to Charlotte with my new wife, we're going to get a job, and you know, we're going to live it up in this little up-and-coming city. You moved, you stayed with dad and mom, and what happened is dad built a new wing on the house for you. And so what happened is these, these houses became family compounds, lots of land, and these ever-growing, evolving houses. And ladies, same for you. As you reach adulthood, if you get married, you're going to his father's house, and there's a new wing for y'all. And if you're not married at that time, you stay with your father, and, and they build out that house, making room, making a place for the people that they were living with. Which means this, because of what Jesus says. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms, or many wings. He's saying, you're coming to live with me and the Father and the Spirit. You're going to live in our house. In a sense, John MacArthur said this uh, about this. He says, we will dwell with God, not down the street from him, but we'll share the same patio. The image that Jesus is painting in your mind that they would have gotten, and we have to do a little more work to get to, uh, is not some massive subdivision where you're handed like keys and an address and a golf cart to go find your place. Uh, you're staying with him, and it's going to be your house. And I find this interesting. It's not like move in and like live in his space in a guest room. He says, I'm going to build you your own space. Your own space. It's going to be yours, and you're going to be with us. What's the significance that Jesus is the one that goes to prepare a place? Because that's critical. Um, when I left Athens back in 09 for the first time, it was the first time I ever moved out of Georgia, I moved to Philadelphia. And um, some of our best friends, Chris and Bonnie Curry, moved to Philadelphia one year ahead of me. And uh, when I got up there a year later, what I discovered is Chris and Bonnie had gone up to Philadelphia to prepare a place for me. Chris and Bonnie knew me inside and out, and I knew them. We were closest of friends uh, before they left, and still are, but, uh, but they knew me. And they went up there, and they got uh, involved in, in an amazing church. They built friends. They found, uh, you know, friend groups at the seminary. They found all the best restaurants, all the best, like, local places. So when I arrived a year later, and I pulled out my Penske truck, there's a, there's a crew full of people I've never seen before waiting to unload my stuff in my house. And then we go out to eat together that night. And then that weekend, they're like, there's some places in Center City we got to show you. You're going to love them. And I loved them because they knew me. It wasn't tourist traps. It was places Ben would like because they knew who I was. And then I go to church and I start realizing these people have heard about me. It's like I met them and they're like, we're so glad you're here. Chris and Bonnie have told us a lot about you. 
And you know what it did? It just greased the tracks for me. I felt like I had a home, even though I'd never been to Philadelphia before, waiting on me. It makes all the difference in the world if the one who goes to prepare a place for you is one who knows you. I'm not going to re-preach the past 12 weeks of passages, but Jesus created you. He sustains you. You're alive because he has sustained your life on November 11th, 2020, and that's the only reason you're alive. He knows you, he loves you, he pursues you, he speaks to you, he's figured you out, he's cracked the code, he knows you in ways you don't even know yourself. He is the one Christian who has gone on ahead of you to prepare a place for you. Your arrival won't be totally unfamiliar. It'll be like my arrival to Philadelphia. This place is new and there's just this sense that I've been here before. It's people that I love and they feel like they know me and I know them. Feels hand in glove. That's what Jesus is describing when he's talking about these things. That's what he's describing. He's gone to prepare a place for us. At least one little implication from this, the reason Jesus left these disciples was not for a negative or a bad reason, it was for a positive reason. I'm leaving not because I'm abandoning our mission, because I'm doubling down on our mission. I'm going to secure this place for you, to open it up for you, to deliver you to it, decisively. So, how are you and I to stop letting our hearts be troubled by Jesus's apparent absence? At a minimum, we're going to take a couple of stabs at this question, but at a minimum, it's, it's to take our eyes off of our feet or off of our navel gazing and to look up at Jesus and to listen to him and to hear him, and to wrestle with the question, where are you? Yeah, I remember you said you're in heaven preparing a place for me, and you're in me preparing a place for you. Friends, we often think that belief and faith are just things that are going to automatically happen when your day comes. You're going to get struck by lightning, and you're a passive victim. Yes, faith is a gift of God, but some assembly is required. Faith is a gift of God, and participation is required. Your engagement is required. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've said this many times before, unbelief is what's automatic. Doubt is what's automatic. Gravity will always pull you there. That's the easiest thing in the world. It's like rolling down a hill just means go limp and roll. Faith has to be kicked into gear. Faith is deciding to put your head in a different place, an object of your faith. Those of you who do not know Jesus who are here tonight, and you've been wondering, when am I going to get struck by this faith lightning and believe? When you start taking Jesus seriously, he has called you to action, to believe. He says it twice in verse 1 here. Believe, believe. Are you listening? Are you hearing? This isn't magic. I've said the words. You're not supposed to make up the words. You don't have to fabricate it. You don't have to wonder what my posture towards you is. I've told you. I've showed you. Are you listening? That's the action that faith launches as it moves toward Jesus. Do you need Jesus' help to do that? Of course you do. Does Jesus give you that help? Of course he does. He says it all the time. Faith, friends, is, faith is this battle to take your mind back, and to take responsibility for your thoughts. And to be an adult, children are victim of their thoughts. 
adults begin to get into the boxing ring and say, wait a second, wait a second, where did, these, where did this skepticism come from? Where did these weird thoughts I'm believing come from? Where is Jesus' voice in my head? I gotta go back, I'm gonna read John 14. I heard it a week ago, I didn't. That's faith. That's listening, that's learning, that's obedience. That's baby steps towards loving Jesus, is listening to Jesus. And as your eyes begin to open up to where Jesus is and what he's doing, the one who knows you is blazing a trail for you. The one who loves you and gave himself for you, your advocate, your benefactor, your best friend, the lover of your soul, your provider, he's the one who has secured and locked down your future. The more your eyes open up to that, the more that future vision grips you, the more today and tomorrow is gonna change in your life. That's a promise. That is a promise. Um, <laughs> some of y'all are sick of me sharing this story because I share it all the time. I love it. Partly because I love the football game it's based on. Chip Chambers graduated last year. You know what I'm gonna say. 2018 Rose Bowl. UGA versus Oklahoma. We win the game in double overtime right at the end. A nail biter of all nail biters. Some of you were there in Pasadena that night. Lucky ducks. And I'm over here in my neighborhood just going crazy with all of our neighbors when we won that game. Well, Chip said, every few months, I just put that game on and I rewatch it. And he said, I love it. I don't know if I loved it the first time because I didn't know it was gonna happen, but I loved watching the reruns of that game because I knew it was gonna happen. So I wasn't on pins and needles the whole time. I knew the outcome, so every fumble, every interception was a little bit easier to take because I all knew how it was gonna end in the last few minutes. Now let's extend this illustration just a little bit. What if you were a player on that team that year and Kirby comes and he says to you, y'all just gotta take my word, we're gonna win this game and this is not a locker room pep talk. We are gonna win this game. I teleported to three hours from now, I saw the reports. We won in double overtime at the last minute. And he says, get out there and fight like hell on that field. Play your hearts out. I'm asking you as an individual, whatever your temperament, would you take that pep talk and be like, oh, awesome, we can slack. We don't even have to go on the field. Nobody in this room, I don't care how passive you are, nobody would say that. You would say like, hey, get your game face on. This is gonna be a blast. Because no matter what happens, we're gonna win. So we're gonna lay it all out on the field, leave it all there tonight, because we know what's gonna happen. It's the same with what Jesus is saying here. The more security you have about your future in Jesus because of Jesus, the more different your life is going to start looking in the here and now. You're gonna play the game differently. This is why C.S. Lewis said that famous thing he does in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set out on foot in the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up in the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of this future we're talking about that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. 
the more your mind is saturated, captivated, influenced by your secure, certain, ironclad future, the more your life's going to change now. The more obsessed and fixated you are with this week in November and what's coming up next for you and the internship you're applying for and the job you're going to get, who you're going to sign a lease with in February, the more that preoccupies your every waking hour and the less you think about where Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's preparing for you, you're going to find that you've missed your life right before your eyes. This is the reason some of us are so timid and take so few risks in our lives, especially in the kingdom of God. We don't, there's still a question mark over, is my future ironclad? Is there a seat at the table for me? Is there a place for me? Or am I still fighting to get a place, to attain a seat at the table? Am I going to miss out? The ultimate FOMO at a cosmic level. I don't want to miss out stuff here. Am I going to miss out stuff there? And because of that, we don't take risks. We have no future hope as Christians. We really do think our future isn't written yet. We really do think we can mess it up. And as a result, we live cautious, timid lives. And we never end up living our lives. Does it make sense? We're so scared. Jesus is on this mission. He's calling us into this mission. He's empowering and equipping us for this mission. He's surrounded you with brothers and sisters in this mission. And we're still like, I don't think I can go because I'm terrified by that. And I'm not mocking that. That's me. I imagine it's you too. The cure for this is a fixation and obsession on Jesus and what he's doing next for you. That doesn't make you a weird spiritual person. It makes you an effective, useful person who actually sticks your neck out on the line because you believe Jesus really is changing this world now through people like us. Jesus says, the person who believes me, who gets it, who takes me at my word that I've secured your life, that person will do works. And he says, he or she will do my works. And then he says something crazy in verse 12, will do works greater than me. Jesus Christ, the resurrected son of God, said that his people will do works greater than his. We know he didn't mean more intense, I guess. Like, uh, he raised people from the dead. He healed people. He forgave people. We're not doing that kind of stuff, right? I think he's talking about the scope, the breadth. Jesus did not evangelize northern Africa. Augustine did. Jesus didn't preach in Caesar's backyard in Rome. Paul did. Jesus didn't start a Bible study at the Beta House in 2003. Ryan and Justin and Brent did. And I know Jesus because of those guys. Jesus is saying, <laughs> I am unleashing my spirit into you and I'm unleashing you into my world. And, and I just replicated myself exponentially because all of you now have the living Jesus inside of you. And he says, scatter, bless, work for the prospering of the world. Bring people back to me, reconcile them. That's what he means that you're going to do works greater than me. And then he says, ask anything in my name, and, it, and I'll do it. This is a, one of those questions you get a lot of like, what does this mean in the Bible? Jesus is saying, I think there's an improvisational aspect to the Christian life. We're not script actors. Here's your script, Christian. Just do this stuff and don't deviate from the script. Have you ever watched Whose Line Is It Anywhere? 
Is that? Yeah, whose line is it anyway? Um, what they do in these improv comedy shows is they give you like a, a big picture narrative, like here's the scene, such and such happens, and then you're this character. The rest is up to you. So long as whatever you do is in alignment with that bigger narrative, it's free game. Jesus is saying in your prayer life, improv. Use your imagination. Be creative. Ask whatever you want, so long as it's fitting with, resonating with this larger narrative of what I'm doing in the world and in you. If it's in alignment with that, halfway through your request, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. This makes so much sense. If Jesus wants you to be doing it and you finally wise up and ask him if he'll do it, will he not do it? It's like one of my daughters asking, can we spend time together Saturday morning? Can we go to Waffle House together? That's our thing. Yes, of course we can. I love those trips with you. Ask anything in alignment with our relationship and the dynamic of that relationship, and the answer is yes. He didn't say how or when or where, and that's hard. And we can talk about that one-on-one -on -one if you want. But he said the answer is yes. I want to begin to wrap this up. Jesus says this other thing, that he's preparing a place in you for himself and the Father. And this is exactly what we've been talking about the past 10 minutes. This place he's preparing in you is a place for his very spirit to minister, to work to, in you and through you. And this is not the kind of thing where it's like, Jesus is saying, I'm in you to prepare a place for me and my father, and we're not moving in until the construction's done. Jesus moves in the day ground breaks, and he's there for the duration. While construction, while renovation is going on, he's there in you, in all the dust, preparing you to be a perfect habitation for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says down at the end of this passage, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send, he does not say I'm going to send a helper. He says he's going to send you another helper. Who is the first helper? Jesus. So the one, Christian, the one that you came into the room with tonight and you're going to leave with tonight and go back to your little dorm room or your little house, whatever troubles you came in, whatever kind of week you're in, the one that you leave with is no one less than Jesus himself, one exactly like Jesus, the spirit of Jesus. I'm going to end with this illustration. What does it mean when Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans? It's not just that Jesus is preparing a place in you so he can kind of colonize you for kingdom ministry, use you. These disciples, what they're most worried about is losing fellowship and communion and friendship and the presence, the real presence of their friend their Savior, Jesus. That's why they're so distraught. And in answer to that, Jesus says, he, he anticipates their fears and he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Orphans is exactly what they would have felt. Today, if you're an orphan, there's whole systems, foster care, adoption, all these kind of things for an orphan. In that day and time, there was nothing. And he's saying, your worst fears are not going to come true, friends. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to send another helper. This is a bad illustration, I think. But it's all I got. So we're going to try it on. I'm sure it has huge holes in it. 
What does it mean that Jesus himself is leaving, but he's sending another helper who's just like him? Imagine, I know for some of you this might be your life, for most people it's an imagination, but imagine if your parents, for whatever reason, left when you were a little kid. They died, they're in prison, whatever, they're out of the picture now, and your grandparents came to take care of you and raise you. And um, over the years, you're getting to know your grandpa and your grandma better and better and better, and you're like, you look like dad. You, dad looks like you, mom looks like you. Um, they act just like your parents, they parent just like your parents, they have the same goals, they have the same things they will not let you get away with. They remind you of your parents, they're just like your parents, and they're for you. They've had history with you. They knew you when you were born, they were with you the day you are in the hospital. They love you. They're not a babysitter, they're not a nanny, they're yours. They're your family, and they raise you. I think something analogous is going on with what it means that Jesus has left but sent you his spirit. One like him who loves him, who is loved by him, who loves you, is in you, raising you, teaching you, reminding you, Grandpa, tell me what the war was like. And over the course of 20 years, you, you slowly get all the pieces. Spirit, tell me what Jesus is like. Remind me, remind me of his heart for sinners because I'm forgetting, I'm scared again. Spirit, tell me what he would do in this situation. And over the long haul, you know Jesus more and more because Jesus is in you through his spirit, living and loving and bringing you back to life. That's what Jesus is doing now. And it's where he is in heaven, preparing a place for you like my friends prepared a place for me in Philadelphia that will fit you to a T, and he's in you, preparing a place hospitable for him and the Father. In the weeks ahead, this is a theme that keeps coming back up. We'll talk about how does Jesus accomplish this for you? How does he open the door for this for you? But for tonight, we'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us believe these things. We pray, Holy Spirit, right now, you would preach to us inside of our hearts and our minds Teach us, remind us of all the things that Jesus did and said. Make them resonate inside of us. Open our eyes. And we pray that you would deepen our confidence and our faith in you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.